Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I want to tell you about some of the first prayers I ever remember praying. I'm like probably five or six years old. And I used to go with my mom to this um, thrift store uh, called the Amity. It's this like department store, kind of like the Value Village that you guys would be familiar with just not safe. Uh, Two stories of used goods like furniture and clothes and household stuff and lots and lots of toys and books and all kinds of stuff. Um, I would go with my mom most Saturdays down to the Amity. It's um, It it was at the corner of um, of Ferguson and King William right downtown. Here's a picture of it. And yeah, we'd go with my mom most Saturdays and uh, when we would we would get there usually in the morning just in time for when the staff would wheel out these giant steel carts that were loaded with boxes and boxes of used stuff that had been priced and was ready to be put out for sale. And uh, and when the staff would bring out those carts, I would pray. Because like some weeks those carts would be loaded and you'd go through all those boxes and you'd dig and dig and sometimes you'd just find like boring household stuff like, I don't know, like teapots or cutlery or dishes and stuff like that. But sometimes you hit the jackpot and there might be He-Man figures or G.I. Joes or Star Wars toys or wrestlers or Ninja Turtles or all the things, okay? And so we would wait as they would wheel out these big carts all the customers would sort of circle around them, hovering kind of like vultures, and I would I would pray. I'd pray like, God, please, you you can do this. I know. Please let there be something good in there. God, please let there be something good in there. And uh, then we would, you know, we'd be allowed to go and dig through the boxes. And most weeks, there wasn't good stuff. And I would go, man, thanks a lot, God. Like, you, you could have put something cool in there for me, but you didn't. And to me, this was suffering, like, on the level of Naomi. This is on the level of Naomi saying, uh, you know, God has brought me back empty. I went away full, and God has brought me back empty. I believed that this was suffering. And even at this young age, even at the young age of, like, five or six years old, I believed that we live in a world where God gets his way. And if God decides that something should happen, if God decrees, if God, if God says that something should happen, then it will. Now, there's a theological word for that, and it's the word, it's the word providence. I don't know if you've heard that before, but providence is the answer to the question, is God in charge? Does God get his way? Like, if God wants something to happen, does it happen? And the church has always wrestled with questions related to God's providence, because obviously it's a big question. Like, it relates to all sorts of other things, free will and evil and suffering and pain and all kinds of things like that. And and so providence has made its way into our confessions of faith. A really good example is the Heidelberg Catechism uh, from 1563. And in the Heidelberg, they define providence as the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by his hand. He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, 
Yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I think that's a really good definition of God's providence. Now, it's important to recognize not everybody agrees with that view. There's another view that I can trace it back up maybe 50 years. It's a view called open theism. And in this view, God is, um, he's, he chooses to respect human free will. He's bound by it. He chooses to be bound by it. And so God, he won't interfere in human affairs. That's what, that's what we mean by open theism. The future is open. Okay. An example of somebody who holds this view is an American theologian named Gregory Boyd. And Gregory Boyd says in a couple of different places, uh, he says, neither Jesus nor his disciples assumed there had to be a divine purpose behind all events in history. Do you hear that? Rather, Greg Boyd says, they understood the cosmos to be populated by a myriad of free agents, some human, some angelic, and many of them evil. Greg Boyd says, when an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I do not think we can go looking for the purpose of God in the event. I know Christians frequently speak about the purpose of God in the midst of tragedy caused by someone else, but this I regard to simply be a piously confused way of thinking. That's Gregory Boyd. Now, if we could ask Naomi, who we've been talking about these last few weeks in the book of Ruth, if we could ask Naomi, I think she'd say, I couldn't disagree more. Because in Naomi's lowest point, back in chapter 1, she said, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And, and even if you might want to nuance the ways God was actively involved in the circumstances of Naomi's life and Naomi's suffering, she's, she's telling the truth. Like, she believes this stuff. There's, there's no doubt in Naomi's mind that God was involved. Like, it didn't catch him by surprise. You know what I'm saying? Like, like God wasn't up there wringing his hands in shock. Like, oh my goodness, where did this come from? What am I going to do? Oh, I, I, I wish that there was something I could do about it, but I'm not allowed. No. No. That's, that's not what Naomi believes. In fact, today... We're going to see Naomi goes through quite a, quite a big change. Naomi's circumstances change. Naomi's perspective on her circumstances changes. In fact, she's going to teach us what providence is. From, from Naomi's perspective, God's providence has been bitter for a very long time. But by the end of one day, okay, one day later, Naomi, Naomi's praising him. And so, so we want to focus on, on just one question today. What is it that's changed? At the end of this one day, uh, what, has, ex what exactly has changed? And uh, we're going to come at the answer to that by, by looking at three uh, people's role in the events of chapter 2 in the book of Ruth. We're going to begin by talking about the role of Ruth. We're going to talk about the role of Boaz. And we're going to talk about the role of God in his providence. So let's begin with Ruth. All right, with Ruth. So in chapter two, Ruth 
has put in just half a day's work. She went out and she wasn't totally sure what to expect, but she hoped she might find favor with someone, and she has. She's found favor with Boaz. Uh, that's said three different times in, in, this, in the passage here. And so now she's joining Boaz and his, the rest of his staff for lunch. And Boaz offers her the finest food, stuff... She, no, we have no reason to believe she's ever eaten this well before. She's got roasted grains. She's got bread dipped in wine vinegar. And she's surrounded by staff who are, who are committed to treating her well. And she eats until she's full. They even give her the, the leftovers. And, and you might, we might just pause and wonder here, like, man, when was the last time Ruth ate like this? When was the last time Ruth ate until she was full? When was the last time Ruth had leftovers, you know? Well, after lunch, Ruth goes back out into the field. She, she gleans uh, and uh, she stops at evening. And she's got a huge harvest uh, because Boaz has been so generous with her and because she has worked so hard, she's got this huge harvest. She takes it to the threshing floor and she bangs it out until she's got this bag full of grain that the text uh, tells us uh, is the amount, an amount called an ephah. Now, you and I don't measure things as in terms of ephahs, but it's an amount that's equal to about six gallons, uh, six U.S. gallons, or roughly 50 pounds of grain. This is a huge amount. You know when you go to the grocery store and you see in the pet food section, you see those massive bags of dog food that you might feed a small horse? That's what we're talking about. That's one of the, it's the size of one of these massive bags of dog food. So Ruth goes home with that amount of grain, plus her leftovers from lunch. Can you imagine what it's like to be Naomi and see Ruth? She's kind of coming over the hill on her way back to where Naomi's been staying. And, and, and I mean, you could imagine this just blows Naomi's mind. Like, she can't believe it. Like, oh my goodness. How was your day, Ruth? Oh, I, I'll show you how my day was. Boom! 50 pounds of grain, man. This is going to feed us for weeks Naomi hoped at the beginning of that day that maybe Ruth might go out and she might glean enough to maybe fill a pocket with grain. Maybe they might be able to make a couple of loaves out of it. This amount of grain is totally unexpected. Ruth has shown some amazing courage today. She's shown amazing strength and loyalty and, and faith. And, and it blows Naomi away. That's Ruth's contribution. That's her role in this story. Now let's talk about the role of Boaz. Now we've already seen that before he ever meets Ruth, Boaz has apparently already heard all about Ruth. And when they talk and she meets him and the staff introduce him to her, he, uh, he gives her work and he feeds her and he gives her privileges. And, and after lunch, in verse 15 here, Boaz now tells the staff I want you to let her harvest in front of you where there's plenty of sheaves that haven't been cut down yet. In fact, take some of what you've harvested and I want you to lay it out for her. Now that's the last thing Ruth expected today, okay? Ruth, at the beginning of the day, she goes out hoping against hope that maybe there's a farmer out there who won't reject her because she's a Moabite. You know, there's maybe there's a farmer out there who isn't going to kick her out or send her away because of her race. She, she hopes maybe she might glean a, a little bit of barley today. Maybe, maybe 
she'll come home with a with a pocket full of barley, okay? She she hopes maybe, hopes against hope that maybe she's not going to get assaulted by some of the men out in the field harvesting. And instead, she finds Boaz. And at the end of this one day, she's got a steady job. She's got a boss who cares and shows interest in her. She's got great working conditions. She's got amazing benefits. She's got people and staff who are nice to her. But that's not even Boaz's biggest part of the story yet. Because in verse 20, Naomi, when she hears what's going, what has happened today, she's going to respond and explain to Ruth by dropping this huge bombshell on her. Guess what, Ruth? It just so happens we are related to Boaz. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is our guardian redeemer. And, and we should pause there and go, like, what, what does that mean? What does it mean when she says he's a redeemer? Well, what it is, is it's a, it's a person who has a position or who has a, like a legal right or a legal authority to buy back a family's property. Suppose in our culture, suppose you're, you're a part of a family who a couple of generations back, maybe you had a grandfather who had a, a gambling problem. And he used to have this great big farm on the outside of town, but he gambled it and he lost it in a bet. And so that property's gone. And so now your family's poor. You've been trying to, you know, kind of squeak out a living on your own. Your kids have nothing that they can inherit because grandpa lost the farm in a bet. But what if somebody could buy it back for you? If they could, that person would be your redeemer. They would redeem grandpa's mistake. They would redeem the land and you would have an inheritance again. You'd have a new chance at a new life. That's what a redeemer is. Uh, an Old Testament scholar named Sandra Richter explains what a, what a redeemer is. She says, in Israel's tribal society, redemption was the act of a patriarch who put his own resources on the line to ransom a family member who found themselves enslaved by the consequences of a faithless life. Redemption was the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security within the kinship circle. That's what a redeemer is. That's what Boaz represents for Naomi. This like totally unexpected, life-changing opportunity. That's what Boaz represents for them. That's, that's Boaz's part. That's Boaz's role in the story so far, okay? Now, we've talked about Ruth, we've talked about Boaz, and over all of it, the third role uh, that we need to talk about is the role of, of God by his providence. What has God been up to? Well, he's not named as being sort of directly active in the story of Ruth, but we can see he, he actually has been. In fact, God has been doing exactly what he promises in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, if you remember, says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And God has been doing a lot of Romans 8.28 uh, in this story so far. We know that because after one day's work from Ruth, and after one day's generosity from Boaz, Naomi's tone has changed completely. She can't keep it in. She sees what's happened. She sees this amazing uh, load of grain from Ruth. She hears about the generosity of Boaz and she praises God in chapter 2 verse 20. She says, The Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi says that. That's God's part. 
That's what God's been up to. God has been here all along in unexpected, unseen ways, showing his kindness. And, and we should notice something about what Naomi says. What is this kindness? What is the kindness that Naomi is referring to here? This is an actually a really important word. Uh, in Hebrew, the word that is translated here as kindness is a Hebrew word, chesed. You, want to, you might want to try that. You want to say that with me? Chesed. Chesed is uh, translated in, in different places as loving kindness, as God's faithful love, as God's loyal love. It's this the idea of this unexpected, generous kind of love. And, and some would say that God's chesed is his defining attribute in the Old Testament. Like in Exodus, when, when God's glory passed by Moses... You remember it was it was too blinding for Moses to look at, so he could only see God's backside. Remember that? But what we read is that God introduces himself and, and, and reveals himself and says, uh, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, and in that place where God, in that passage where God is revealed as uh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that's abounding in chesed. So in that one word, chesed, is contained the ideas of, of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And verse 7, God keep, keeps this steadfast love, this chesed for the thousandth generation. That's a that's a really important uh, word for us to understand. God's loyal love, his covenant love, this faithful, unexpected, generous kindness of God comes up all over the Old Testament. Uh, one Old Testament scholar, Caroline Custis James, she said that God's chesed is uh, it's an active, selfless, sacrificial, caring for one another that goes against the grain of our fallen natures. Chesed is driven not by duty or legal obligation, but by bone-deep commitment, a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has the right to expect or ask of them. And, and here's why that's important, okay? Because Naomi sees... Like, oh my goodness, God has done that for us. God has shown his chesed to the living and the dead. That's, that's what God's been doing. God has been with us all along. God has been for us all along, even when it didn't look like it. Even now, when I didn't expect it. I, I believe that God's providence looked like one thing. God's providence was only, it was only bitter. It was only hard. It was only, it was only tough on, uh, for us. Now I see God's providence is also beautiful. God never abandoned us. All along, it was God's chesed. That's what Naomi seems to be saying here. Now, and, and we should ask, is that true? Is, is that true that God, by his providence, was with Naomi all along? That God is with us? That God, by his providence, has been with us all along, whether through bitter or beautiful circumstances? Is that true? 
you know, here, here's why I ask. Because, you know, for a lot of people, what's been happening in Naomi's family back in, in Moab was, was tragic. It was unfortunate. Some people might say she was unlucky. Wrong place at the wrong time. Wrong family at the wrong time. Some people would look at how things turn around for her in chapter 2 and, and might say that, wow, that Naomi, you've been fortunate. You've been lucky. But Naomi doesn't believe in luck. Naomi believes in, in providence. Even when, when things in Naomi's life were at their worst, Naomi doesn't explain them in terms of, of luck or wrong place at the wrong time. Naomi believed God was in this. God was over it. Hard as it was, she believed that God was doing this. And, and Naomi teaches us something really important like agree or disagree with their like specific conclusions sufferers are theologians okay sufferers are theologians sufferers don't need to be convinced that there's a god they don't need to be convinced that god is in charge even if it's because uh you know they think god god has turned against them even if you know maybe you disagree with some of their specific conclusions about what what god's role in their suffering is suffering people are theologians. They tend to be quite religious and have really pretty religious ideas. I don't know about you, but I've never met a, a poor, a struggling person who believes in luck. Like, like never. I don't, I don't know if you ever noticed this. When a, a homeless person wants to thank you because you have, you know, shared maybe some spare change or something, it would be easy enough for them to say, hey, thanks, dude. Or, you know what? Thanks. That means a lot. Instead, it's God bless you. God bless you. Why do they why is that? Why does why do we need to bring God into it? Why why do we feel like that's the appropriate thanks for for sharing what you've got, for sharing a bit of spare change with a homeless person? Why is that? Well, because sufferers are theologians. I was at Walmart a while back during um one of the COVID lockdowns, uh, at a time when people are the most afraid. And uh there was a guy standing outside the store, he was asking for change and I didn't have any because I don't usually carry change, but I offered that if it would be helpful, like I'd be happy to pick up a few things for you. And um, he said, like, are you serious? You would do that for me? Like, man, you wouldn't believe it. I asked God for help today. And and here you are. This is unbelievable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, like I, I went in to the store and I, I picked up a few things. I maybe spent like 10, 15 bucks. And I had a bag of groceries for him and I handed it over and he's stunned. And he goes, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but forget that. Come here, bro. Except he didn't say forget. He jumps on me. He throws his arm around me, hugs me, uh, like profusely, passionately hugging me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. He says, God bless you, man. You have no idea how much this means. I know God sent you to me. I know God sent you to me. And I thought that was interesting. I stayed on a few minutes. We had a great kind of gospel conversation. And I'm not saying that he became a, like a, a fully devoted follower of Jesus that day. I am saying that by the time that somebody came along and had showed him this unexpected kindness, this guy already believed in God. He already believed that God was in charge. He believed that God was against him. I'm not saying this guy became a believer. I'm saying that one little kindness 
helped open him up, though, to the possibility that God cares about him and that God isn't out to get him after all. Well, come back to Naomi. All right, come with me back to Naomi. Because before today, Naomi was quite sure that God was against her. And, and now she praises him. And she says, God has never stopped showing his chesed. God has never stopped loving us after all. And, and we need to understand, we need to reflect on this for a minute and, and go like, wait a minute, what's, what has actually changed? Well, what's changed is one day of unexpected kindness. Just, just one day of God's chesed. Because it, it is all over this story. God is over Ruth, for example. God is seeing to it that Ruth's courage held up. Okay, God is over Boaz. He's seeing to it that, um, that Boaz is, is generous and he's not stingy. But God is also over the workers. He's seeing to it that they uh, obey Boaz and that they accept his decision to receive and, and to welcome Ruth, right? God's over them as well. And God was over the land that day. God is seeing to it that it's, a, it's an ideal work day and the rain stays away so that, so that Ruth can get in a full day's work. God is all over it. God's over the lunch table even. God is over that meal, seeing to it that, that Ruth knows and gets to experience what a feast feels like. And so, friends, what I'm saying is that God's providence is at work in a hundred ways in this story. Naomi already knew that before today, but because of this one day of unexpected kindness, her faith has changed. Okay? This one day of unexpected chesed, her faith has changed, her outlook has changed, her worldview has changed. Naomi's, Naomi's theology has changed. Suffering had, had broken it, and today... This unexpected chesed, this unexpected kindness and love has, is, is healing it. It's healing it. That's providence. That's providence. Now, why would we spend this time talking uh, about providence? Well, because in a way, learning to accept God's providence, the, the bitter parts and, and the beautiful parts... Is, is kind of what the book of Ruth is for. I actually agree with uh, what Pastor John Piper has to say about providence in the book of Ruth when he says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and a troubled road. And the point of biblical stories like Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. I couldn't agree with that more. And, and here we are in the season of Lent. And we planned for this study of Ruth to happen in the season of Lent. When, when, when we deny ourselves and we embrace the reality that we are not in control of this world, that God is. Lent reminds us of how human we are, of how fallen we are. Lent reminds us we can't fix our world and our circumstances on our own. If we could, if we could, we would have. 
And, and that's what Lent is about. Lent is hard. Lent is hard, especially if you're already facing struggles like Naomi was in the story. But I would remind us, there is a redeemer for us too. There is a redeemer. And, and he, he redeems us from the evil things that we've done and he, he redeems us from, even from the good things that we did for evil reasons. And he redeems us from the evil things that have been done to us. God has shown us his, his love, his kindness. God has shown us his chesed by coming to earth and living and dying and rising in our place. So there should be no doubt about how God feels about us. Isn't that good news? There should be no doubt how God feels about his people. That's why we're talking uh, about providence. And so, so in light of these things, I, I want to close just by, by pleading with us. I want to plea a couple of things for us. First of all, my, my first plea is that let us offer ourselves to those who suffer. Let's offer ourselves to those who suffer. I don't know who that is in your uh, orbit, the people, you know, your sphere of influence. I don't know who the sufferers are, but you do. It, it, maybe it's you. Maybe it's people in this room. I just want to remind us, Naomi's outlook changed after one day's unexpected kindness. One day's generosity. One day's unexpected courage. You know? Like... I don't consider myself an extremely like courageous or, or generous person, but when I find myself in situations where courage is needed or, or generosity is needed, you know what I do? I just, I pray like this, God, give me 30 seconds of ridiculous courage. God, give me 30 seconds of ridiculous wisdom or ridiculous faith, or ridiculous generosity. And you know what? He does. I am not suggesting we are anybody's redeemer or that we're anybody's savior. But in God's providence, here you are for the person in your orbit who's suffering. And, and here they are. And so my plea here is that we would consider, you know, once you come to the place where you can say, I know that I don't have to. I know that I don't have to be the one to, to offer this unexpected kindness, but I can. Once you come to that place where you say that you can and you're willing, you know, something changes. Something changes. When you step out and you offer yourself uh, to the suffering person, something happens in some big, like, mind-blowing, cosmic way that I don't understand yet. Our choices uh, line up with God's sovereignty to, to bring about a, a story that, that someday we're going to look back on and say, Oh my goodness, that was providence. Like now I see. That was God's providence. And he never stopped showing us his kindness. And I really believe we can do that for one another. We can be that for one another. I, I really believe that that is part of what it means for us to be the church. And so that's my first plea. Let us offer ourselves to those who suffer. Let's offer ourselves to those who suffer. My second plea is this, as I close. Let us not seek to protect people from God. Let's not seek to protect people from God. Least of all sufferers. Least of all sufferers. Look, I, 
I get why we might want to take God out of the conversation about suffering. Nobody wants to suggest that it's God who does evil or that God takes pleasure in our suffering. I totally get that. I I get why a Greg Boyd comes along and says that God can't interfere in what happens down here. God has to respect our free will. I totally get that. I just I just believe it's not ultimately that helpful. It's not helpful. I, I promise you, if if our message to a sufferer is, you know what? God will change things. God will change things. But for, for reasons that he alone knows right now, he waits. If that's our message, I, I know that that is not an easy pill to swallow. But, but there is still hope in that. If, if they believe in God, they, they, they must accept. There's, there's going to be things that we can't understand. Okay? But, but if you tell the sufferer, hey, God wants to make this better, but his hands are tied. He, he's not allowed because free will. Like, that's, that's not better. That's, that's worse. That's much worse. There's no hope in that view because God isn't God anymore. We are. There's no hope in that. And so my plea is this. Like, like I know who I'm talking to here. I, I know, as I, as I look out over the people in this room, I know that I'm talking to people who have suffered. We have been together through some awful things. So I, I, know, I know how this sounds, and I know who I'm talking to, but please believe me when I say that a God who waits to redeem it is better than a God who can't. A God who waits to redeem it is better than a God who can't. And so my plea is this. Let's decide we're not going to remove God from the conversation about suffering and, and, and rob, rob him of his glory and, and rob one another of our only hope. Let us not seek to protect people from God. In a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for us about these things. But before I do, let me close with these questions I'd encourage you to take home. This first one is a question for a neighbor. You might think of this as a conversation starter with your friends or neighbors or coworkers. You might just ask them, hey, can you remember a day that changed the course of your life? Like one day that changed the course of your life. What was it? Question for you to reflect on. Who around you would be most helped by your unexpected kindness? Question three. This is a question for all of us. What is an act of unexpected loving kindness that we could offer that would change the mind of somebody who is convinced that God has turned against them? What's, one, what's an act of unexpected loving kindness that we could offer to someone who is convinced that God has turned against them? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.